all of humankind, from a Christian point of view, could be put into two groups. Those who eventually, someday, will end up in the new heavens and the new earth, have eternity with their Lord Jesus Christ in heaven. And those who will not, those who will perish, those who will go to hell, to eternal conscious torment, separated from their Creator. And what makes the difference? Belief in Jesus Christ. Some who believe in Jesus Christ will go to heaven. Some, the rest, who don't will go to hell. That's just the brutal, stark, cold, biblically clear reality of it. This morning, we're going to be in John 3.16. We're just in the next phrase of this famous passage. We've been in this now for three weeks. This is the third week in John 3.16. And I told you back at the beginning when I started walking through this verse and, and taking time, I'm not trying to labor over words, not trying to, uh, tr- trying to just um, uh, kind of pause us for no effect other than look at all the interesting things we can see here. My concern is that because this is such a common verse, we may just overlook some very important truths that are here, and so my desire is for us to really, really, really get to know this awesome gospel verse. The first two weeks, we covered the first two phrases of this verse, for God so loved the world, that's the first week, that he gave his only son, that was last week. Today, we're going to build on those and move on into the next phrase, but just uh, for a little bit of context, I'm going to read John 3, 16 through 21, see this section that Jesus is Speaking to the Pharisee Nicodemus, pray, and then we'll go back through and take a look at the next phrase. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Let's pray. Father, the deck deck is stacked against us today. We have sinful flesh that hangs on our bones. It messes with our minds. It messes with our thoughts. It imposes upon us. And, Lord, it's a challenge to see truth and to love it the way we ought to because of that. Father, there are, there are intellectual challenges, rationality challenges, logical challenges. We struggle sometimes with verses even like this. Father, the familiarity of this text could be an additional challenge when it comes to wondering this. Lord, the, the familiarity with this having been taught or preached on or, or, or um, in some way unpacked in Bible studies and uh, just in our personal time, even that could, could, Lord, if not done carefully, have maybe even obscured a bit of what is happening here. And so we just have a lot of things we need you to help us with this morning. Help us to see clearly. Lord, our end goal is that we would give you great glory and honor, that you would, you would be more loved by us, more clearly and thoroughly um, treasured by our time in the Word. And so, Father, please help me to not stumble. Help me to care well for my brothers and sisters here as I seek to explain this next important phrase. Be with us this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. First week we covered, For God so loved the world. 
quick summary of that. The point of the verse, I think, is to explain God's motivation for offering eternal life through belief in Jesus Christ. His motivation being love. In other words, if we were to state it as a question, why would God provide salvation through belief in His Son? Because He loved the world. That's why. I argued the first week that I think this is also the universal love of God, the kind of love that He offers to all humankind, the kind of common grace love that everyone has. Even people who will not be in heaven got to hear the words of Jesus preached, got to see him hung upon a cross, got to see uh, or hear about and have witness of the story, read about the Christ that died for sins. I think that is a universal love activity. It is based on the universal love for God, of God for the world, that he gave his only son. That was what we covered last week, that he gave his only son. What I hammered there repeatedly over and over is that Jesus is a gift a gift granted, given to the world, given to us to be received as a gift from a giver. He has been offered to the world. He is a good and perfect gift from a good and perfect giver. But there's no period at this point in the sentence. Obviously not in Greek. There's no periods going on here in Greek. But the phrase continues. It doesn't stop. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Done. Therefore, the world has the son. No. Because the next half of the verse qualifies the first. There are some who have the Son, some who have received the gift of the Son, and others who have not. And that's what we see next. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him, that whoever believes in Him. Your different English translations might say the words slightly different. But at the end of the day, the idea here is the same. This is what qualifies whether or not a person will get perishing or eternal life, which is said later in the verse. One of those two things will come to a person based upon whether or not they have believed in him. Not all have received the good gift of Jesus. Not all have eternal life. Many will perish. In fact, we will see later in the book of John that those words, perish, eternal life, those are just totally equated with hell and heaven. That's, that's what perish means. Perish means hell. That's the way John uses that word. And, and eternal life means heaven uh, or, or the new heavens and new earth, depending on how far into the future we think. You know, everyone loves heaven. There's a, there's a, there's a doctrine of some kind of paradise after death, some kind of heaven reality in Almost every worldview, almost all of them, certainly all the major ones. Hell, on the other hand, is not so shared. Hell, biblically, is eternal conscious torment. It's, it's, it's torment away from the presence of the Lord, away from his common grace. And as awful as that is, it's critical to, to acknowledge hell also is avoidable. You don't have to go there. And how is it that a person can avoid hell? Believe. Believe in him. In this sermon, that's what we're going to unpack. We're going to look at that. You have to believe in him, and you won't perish. You won't go to hell. You'll have eternal life. That's what Jesus said. We're going to examine that word. We're going to unpack it a little bit, ask some questions about it. 
And let's begin by asking perhaps the most obvious question. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? If that's the operative change, if that's what determines the difference between you spending an eternity in heaven or an eternity in hell, if that's what it comes down to, then what does it mean to believe in Jesus? Don't you want to know that? You probably know that Muslims believe in Jesus. He's in their holy books. They even believe he came from God. They believe much of, if not all, of his teaching was true, even if over time we've corrupted it in our Bible. They believe in Jesus. It's 1.8 billion people right there. Jehovah's Witnesses, they believe, believe in Jesus. They have a, they have a belief in Jesus. They have, he's a part of that religion. Mormons, of course, we live in Utah here. Of course, all of our LDS neighbors have a belief in Jesus. It's called the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. They have a kind of belief. In fact, uh, many, if not most, Mormons will say, yeah, he died and rose. They believe he died. They believe he rose. They believe he came from God. They believe in Jesus. Do you know the Baha'i faith has a category for Jesus? They specifically see Jesus as a particular figure that must be acknowledged. It should be, ought be acknowledged in the Baha'i faith. Hinduism, Buddhism, especially the Western versions of those things, have a category for Jesus. Even many Western Buddhists consider Jesus a bodhisattva. He's, he's an enlightened figure, a character that ought to be listened to. He had so many good and wonderful things to say. The famous Hindu Gandhi would even say that he loves Jesus. He likes Jesus. I love your Christ, not your Christians, he said. Paraphrasing. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Yes, most faiths in the world have some place for Jesus within their systems, and that's exactly what we'd expect because you must make do with Jesus. You have to have some position on this man. You might not be surprised to hear even many atheists believe that Jesus was a historical figure. Some even appreciate some of his teaching. In fact, try this one on. Satan himself believes in Jesus. He even came to tempt Jesus to get him off the, te- off the path. He knew what Jesus was out for. Jesus was out for worship. He goes, you don't have to go through the path of death. I'll give you worship right now. Just bow to me and I'll give you all you need. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. Satan believed in Jesus. Satan believed that Jesus died. Satan believed Jesus rose. Is that what this is saying? Is that the kind of belief that's being talked about here? That anyone who acknowledges that a man named Jesus existed on this earth, walked around Palestine the first century, that person has eternal life? Of course not. No. No. Belief is more than mere acknowledgement of existence. It is more than intellectual assent. Some people, you know, had all the practical material evidence in the world. They saw Jesus. They heard him preach. They ate bread that was multiplied on the, on the mountaintop. And that great feeding of the 5,000. They saw him raise people from the dead, give blind their sight, restore a lame man's ability to walk. They saw the authority with which he preached. They watched the blood flow from him on the cross. They saw him carried down off the cross. And many even we know had absolutely sure knowledge of an empty tomb. They had to conspire to come up with a plan. Because when they went to the tomb, it was empty. You know, even Nicodemus, Jesus is talking to here now, 
He says, we know you're a man come from God. Intellectually, Nicodemus knows this. But that is not enough. That is not the kind of belief that Jesus is talking about here. Belief, of course, is more than intellectual assent. It does not depend, depend upon evidence. This is why others who have had little to none of that material evidence, never heard Jesus' voice, never saw him walk the earth, never saw a single miracle that he did, never saw the cross, never saw him die, never saw him physically come out of the grave. Why it is that you and I are counted amongst that number, people who never saw those things and yet have eternal life. How? Because we believe. We simply had the word of a missionary, a Bible given to us by the Lord. Centuries later, and we believe. You know, Christians today make much of intellect, especially in the West, I think. We rely upon empirical evidences at a different degree uh, than other places. This is one of the reasons there's such a Copernican revolution happening right now, such a major paradigm shift going down in the West, because all of a sudden we're turning from being in a very very empirically data-driven culture to a whatever you think. It's, it's, it's dramatic. It's happening in every single category of our culture. It's really up, upending everything. It's like the poles of the earth, north and south, are shifting, and it's quite dramatic. But believers, for a while, especially in the West, have been gotten really good at distrusting the emotions, and in part for good reason. You don't just trust your emotions willy-nilly. You don't just say, whatever I think or feel or believe, it's got to be true. No, we know the heart is deceitful above all else. We shouldn't even trust our own minds. That is corrupted. And it's true that Christian faith is also the most rational the most logical, the most coherent, the only genuinely coherent religion, worldview, that exists. But our salvation does not depend upon our ability to reason. That's why the text does not say that whoever understands that he came will not perish. No, 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 no. It's whoever believes in him will have eternal life. You need belief. You need faith. This is why you might be able to try to convince somebody. You might even find some level of success and the person saying, well, at the end of the day, I can't figure out another genuinely obvious solution to this Christ problem. Sounds like this guy actually came. I think he actually said these things. I think they killed him. I think he probably rose from the dead. That by itself is not saving faith. We're not named rationalists. They call us believers. We're not known chiefly for our love of logic, but our love for Christ. We should celebrate that our faith is so logically sound, so rationally complete. We should celebrate that. But belief is far more than a mental faculty. This belief here is to place one's trust in or to have faith in Jesus now, I've shown this connection already. I'll do it again today. In John 1.12, uh, John equates belief and receive. Receive, believe, receive, believe. He does this in John 1.12. He says, but to all who did receive him, Jesus, for all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So belief is equated with receiving. When we say that we believe, that means that we believe in all of him. We receive him. His person, his work, his teaching. You can't say, I believe in Jesus, but I don't receive what he says. The refusal to receive what Jesus says is a clear and demonstrable evidence you do not have the Son. 
If you've received Jesus, if you love Jesus, you will, as he said, abide in his word. You love me, we will know that's true if you obey my commandments. And so this is why it's much more than just a mental faculty. You and I must have faith in Jesus Christ. And this faith is not a one-time occurrence a past event to us. In fact, if you look at the, the structure of the sentence here, even look at the grammar, it, it bears witness to this. You might not be a grammar fan, but it's very evident to see that here. If you just pause for a second, believe is present tense here. It doesn't say that whoever once believed in him, uh, that's not what it says, right? It could have just said whoever believed. That's not what it says. Whoever believes, it is a present active tense. It means now and ongoing. This is not that one time long ago back when you first, it's not as though you could find some stranger on the street and say, hey, are you a Christian? And they go, let me think about that. I think, my memory's poor, I think I remember one time I believed Jesus. No, no, no. You, you would go, oh, so you're not, a, you're, not a, you're not a believer. That's why we use that term, believer. That's so we can assign that language to somebody, believer, because it's present tense. Right now, are you believing? Are you trusting in him? This is all over the Bible. This is, this, this is uh, really evident to us. This is like becoming a mother or a father. There's no going back. Once you become one, that's all there is to it. You don't go, I, I was a father once. No. John 20, verse 31, says the same kind of idea, but gives us a little better language here, a little, little more uh, uh, helpful language in this ongoing sense. Uh, John says why he wrote the gospel. He could have put so many more uh, awesome stories about Jesus in, but he just gave this summary for a reason. He says this, but these, these accounts, these events, are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. Now, that, that's also present active. But you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that, here it is, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Hear that? Present tense, active, it's ongoing. Now, here's why I'm pausing here to make this point. Because I think it is possible for the believer to consider the moment of conversion with a disproportionate significance than we ought. Let me say that again. I think it's possible for the believer to consider the moment of conversion with a disproportionate significance than we ought. Now, I am not saying it is unimportant at all. In fact, Jesus just said, you must be born again. He describes it with this amazing language that's so staggering, Nicodemus doesn't even understand how that could work. Born again? What? Of course it's significant. But you must believe and continue believing. Oftentimes I try to help young engaged couples who are preparing to be married Especially so if I'm providing, um, if I'm going to do the service for them, if I'm providing some level of uh, premarital counseling, try to spend some energy here to make it very clear. Listen, listen, don't overemphasize the wedding to the detriment of the marriage. Okay, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't literally practically don't burn your life savings on the party. Don't do it. Consider the marriage. Consider the rest of your life together. Consider the longevity the Lord would want for you to entertain. Aim for a good and holy marriage. Don't put too much into the, just, just that first point, just the beginning. 1 Corinthians 16, 13 says, Be watchful, stand firm in the faith. 
act like men, be strong. There, there were so many verses that I had that were saying the same ongoing faith kind of thing repeatedly. Uh, but I had multiple pages of extra notes that didn't make it into the sermon, just for sake of time. I'm just going to show you a few of these verses that are saying the same kind of thing in a different way than, than how John said it here in John 3. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith. That's what you're supposed to do. Stand firm in it. That also is a present tense. It's not saying, hey, remember that one time you stood firm? No. 1 Timothy 6.12 says, fight the good fight of the faith. Paul talking to this young pastor, Timothy. Fight the good fight. Ongoing. Hey, remember that, that fight you won? No. Keep it up, Timothy. Keep it up. It's going to have to keep going. It's going to be a challenge. It's going to be rough. Trust. Go on trusting. Believe. Colossians 1, 22-23. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you, church, holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. We must continue in the faith. We must grow. We must be sanctified. You need to grow in your faith. Faith is not that one thing you had when you were a little kid. You just got saved. Oh, I believed you then. Now, now, now it's all up here. I got it all here. It's in my head. No, brothers and sisters, what I mean is every time you open the word, you need to open it with faith. God, show me truth. Speak to me here. Every time you pray to the Lord, God, I'm coming to you in belief. I believe you're hearing my prayer. And that you will answer me in some way. You, you'll give me wisdom and clarity and guidance and, and correction and discipline. And you'll, you'll work on me. Believe. When you need to develop spiritual disciplines of your life, the pursuit of holiness, confession, fellowship, church membership, all the things in life that are a part of what a believer does, we must do so in faith, not only intellectually, well, I know in my head. Listen, of course you should know. But you need to know that at root, your greatest problems in life are faith issues, faith issues that can't be solved merely with a calculator. We must believe, we must believe, we must cry out for help in belief. And so amazingly, when Jesus talks about amounts of faith, what does he say? What does he say? How much faith, how much faith is required for eternal life for the believer? Hey, you got a little bit. Keep going. Keep going because once you get a little more, once you get, once you get to a certain amount, ah, that's enough faith. Now you're saved. No, you know, no. You know that's not the way that it goes. Mustard seed faith. Just a little, just a little bit of faith. You can move mountains. We must believe in a present and active way. It must be ongoing. No, we cannot lose our salvation. I don't believe that for a moment. We can lose it. But why is it your salvation is not lost? Because God preserves your faith day to day. That's why. And also, most critically, we see here that our salvation is not by works of the law, but by faith. And it's not said here. It's, he, doesn't, he doesn't stack this against works. He doesn't do that in this particular moment. But we know that the nature of the entire rest of the text of the New Testament is constantly making sure that the audience knows that it is belief not the works of the law, belief not by all of your good, well-attuned behavior that you've earned or garnered the attention of God in salvation. And this may be surprising to Nicodemus because the Pharisees of his day had gotten to the point in which they thought so corruptedly about their relationship with God that it was based upon them doing the letter of the law. They didn't even care in their hearts. Jesus presses on that repeatedly with them. 
Salvation is not earned by us. This is all over the place. Let me give you just two really wonderful places in the New Testament that you cannot mistake if you just listen to these words. Galatians 2.16. Paul basically says the same thing on repeat, over and over. He's a good pastor. He just says one thing and says it over and over again the same way, or just different ways. Listen to how he says this. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Seriously, that was, that's a mouthful. He just kept saying it over and over. It's not about works of the law. All who rely on the law are under a curse, he says in that same famous book. Salvation is not earned by us. It is not some wage. It is not a payment for a gift to make it no longer a gift. Romans 4, 4 through 5 says, Now to the one who works, this is, this is really helpful language, because if we're thinking wrongly, we can't go wrong if we just listen to this language. If we think we can be saved by what we do, well, of course God wants faith. That's good. That's just one of the things. Just faith. And then if we get faith plus a bunch of other works, then we're set. That's the way all the workspace religions of the world operate. Billions of people on the planet who will even acknowledge the name of Jesus in some way, in some measure, will say that it is your faith plus all of these other works that earn for you eternal life. But listen to what Paul says in Romans 4, 4 through 5. Now to the one who works, that's works of the law, seeking to obey the commandments of God, his wages are not counted as a gift but as his due. And to the one who does not work, this crazy, to the one who does not work, take that whole list of works and throw it. Get it gone. Regarding your salvation, your peace with God, get that list gone. That is not how you get yourself in his good graces. And to the one who does not work but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. This is such an affront to the workspace religions of the world that they have to do crazy things with this exact verse. Did you know that? Did you know that Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, rewrote this verse in his translation and changed it so it didn't say, to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. Joseph Smith added a word, he says, and justifies not the ungodly because he knew that this destroys the Mormon faith. It destroys the workspace religion. And so he had to change it is a devastating blow to our works-based mind. If you need to know this, if you're not a believer today, this is what we want for you. We don't want belief to be one more of those things that you add to your life. We want for you to trust in nothing other than Christ. You are deserving of death, perishing, separation from God and hell because of your wickedness. Like all of us, all humankind are in the same position. So we read in Psalm 14 at the beginning of this sermon, at the beginning of our, our service, so we did the prayer time. No one seeks after God. No one loves God. No one is righteous. No, not one. That's all of us. And so what must we do? How do we get the condemnation rightly due to us off of us? By putting it onto Christ. The condemnation that's on us needs to go onto him and needs to be punished on the cross. And by believing in him, you can have your sins paid for in him to such a degree that you have eternal life. Not perish, but eternal life. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. That's what we want for you today. We want for you to stop trying to the list, stop trying to just 
Don't do bad things and you'll get to heaven. Start doing more good things and you'll get to heaven. It's not going to work. It's not by works. I want you to believe in him. Our desire is for you to repent of your sins and turn in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. And just as he was buried in the grave, he came out three days later, rose to new life. You too can raise to new life. That's what we want for you today. Stop trying to work your way to him if that's you. Believe and be saved. There's a logical problem in this text that I want to point to. There's a problem regarding the nature of gifts and the receiving of gifts. I spent a bunch of time last week explaining this, and now I'm going to apply what we talked about there to this particular verse. Try to follow me here. If you try to pay for a gift, it's no longer a gift, right? Somebody offers you a present. This is for you. Oh, this is so kind. Here, here's the money for it. How much do I owe you? Oh, no, nothing. It's a gift. I will not accept this. You're getting money. You've rejected the gift. I spent time last week explaining how it's rejecting the gift giver, in a sense, when you do that, right? When you pay for it. Oh, no, I'll buy it from you. When there's an exchange, I do this, you do that. That's no longer a gift. It's a wage. That's exactly what Paul just said. To the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. You cannot put God in your debt. So if you try to exchange something for a gift, it's no longer a gift. But listen to what Jesus just said. Jesus said, there's a condition you must meet or you will not have eternal life. If you do not meet this condition, you will not receive the gift of the Son. Think about that. For God so the world, he gave his only son. Does everybody receive him? No. Does everybody get the gift of Jesus? No. Whoever has the son has life. Salvation language. Does everyone have the son? No. So there's a condition that must be met in the person in order for that gift to be received. But, 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 how is it still a gift? How does that work? I just bought it from you. I bought it with my belief. That's an exchange. He offers the gift, but we don't receive it by itself. We are required to meet a condition. And we know this for certain because many will not meet that condition and others will. Some will reject the gift. They will say, I will not pay you belief. Once they don't get it, and others will. There's a problem here. Let me illustrate, if I'm not making this clear, I want to go ahead and illustrate this a little bit, little bit more sincerely. Today is my son's 10th birthday, okay? If I were to, right after service here, head out, take him to the store, his favorite store, to pick out some gift, and I were to be like, I want you to get a gift. Picks it out, goes up to the counter, and when we get there, and they ring it up at the register, I turn to him and say, so where's your allowance money? Pull out your wallet. Is that a gift? Hey, you know that money you earned? Well, put it down. You... That's not a gift. It's a purchase made. You see? If he does pay, he gets, the, gets to take it. Walks out of the store. If he doesn't pay, he doesn't get to take it. You, you get, this, get this problem now. So wait a second, Jesus. If it's a gift, how come everybody doesn't get it? At the end, how come everyone doesn't have it? If he's really given to the world, how is it that the world doesn't all have this gift? 
Hmm. Now, you might be thinking, well, Rich, you're confusing a few things here, maybe a few things, but at least you're confusing this. Faith is not a work. There's works of the law or there's faith. So you're paying for it in a sense, but it's paid by faith, not by works. And that's the point that's going on here. And I would say, I think that that's true. But my question is, is faith a work? The answer is yes. Belief is a work. Jesus himself says it. In John chapter 6, this is one of my favorite passages in evangelism when I'm talking to Mormons on the street. I say, hey, they only have 30 seconds. They're waiting at a stoplight. Okay, okay, quick second. Can I just share a favorite Bible verse with you? They're like, sure. And I quote John 6, 28 and 29. whole group of people just received the, the, the bread that was broken and fed 5,000. The crowd comes up to Jesus. I'll read it out loud to you. What must we do to be doing the works of God? This is what they say to Jesus. What must we do to be doing the works of God? I think that's a great question. You've got a clear, miracle-proven man of God in front of you. And there's no doubt. This is a prophet at the very least. He's got a connection with God. Whatever you believe about him, he's going to have some truth. You're going to ask him some questions. This is a good one to ask. What does God require of me? What must, must we do to be doing the works of God? Answer? Jesus answered them, this is the work, singular, that's really important. This is the work of God. What do you think Jesus said next? And this is what I ask people on the street. What do you think Jesus said next? This is the work of God. One thing, what do you think it is? It's incredible to listen to the answers. Well, don't murder somebody. Uh, follow the Ten Commandments. I'm like, that's ten things, not one. Okay. And they'd ask, uh, well, you have to just, um, you have to be a good person. I'm like, well, that's pretty ambiguous. And they, they keep going with stuff. I go, that's actually not what Jesus said. Can I tell you what Jesus said? This is the work of God to believe in him whom he has sent. What is the work of God? Believing in Jesus. Yes, there's a sense just exactly as I'm saying here. There is a sense in which our belief is a work. It's the something offered. It's a payment for the gift of Christ received. So how does it work? You see the problem? You see why I'm saying this is an issue? If we exchange, purchase the gift of Jesus by our work, he's not a gift. How do we square this? The answer, your belief doesn't come from you. That's the answer. Your belief does not come ultimately from you. Even the faith required to be saved is a gift from God. You could not have it if he had not supplied it. As a sinful and fallen creature, there is nothing good and pleasing in us, but, fa- but it is required to have faith to please God. Your belief does not originate in you any more than Jesus originates in this world. There are two gifts going on in this verse. So let's say it a different way. Where does your faith come from? Where does your belief come from? Where where did it come from? You have it. Your neighbor doesn't. You're going to heaven. Your neighbor is not. Your brother or sister, like literal, biological brother or sister, maybe husband or wife, if that's the dynamic in your own. You have it. They don't. Why? Where did that come from? And where can they get it? Answer, it came from God. That's exactly what Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says. For by grace you have been saved through faith. God graciously saves us, how? Through faith. That's again the operative thing going on. Through faith. 
and this is not your own doing. Pause. What is not your own doing? Your faith is not your own doing. He continues, it is the gift of God. What is the gift of God? Your faith is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that, this is the important part, no one may boast. That's why. That's why this works out that way. So at the end of the day, you can't say, well, I'm glad at least I believed. It's at least that's good on me. I've done a lot of bad things in my life, but at least one thing I got right. I drew deep down into the well of my goodness and brought out something pleasing to God, belief. Now I can pay for the gift. Wrong, wrong. Go back to the illustration that I shared for, with you again about my son. Take him to the counter, picks out the gift, uh, comes over there, sets it, on, uh, sets it on the conveyor belt. They scan the thing. And it gets to the point of payment. And before he has a chance to think, I reach across my credit card and say, I got it. In fact, a further illustration might be I hand the card to him. Here, pay for it. It is my gift to you. Nothing earned. No condition met in you, ultimately. Now he takes the card and he pays. He does do that. He believes. He exercises that belief, but it comes from me. That's the way we are saved. We see this also made clear to us by the fact that not only did God give us his son, we saw that language last week, God gave his only son, but also Jesus repeatedly says that God gave us, believers, to the Son. God gave the church, Christians, to Jesus. We are a gift to Jesus. Let me show you a few places in John. This is all over the New Testament. Look just in John, John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Who's the gift there? We are the disciples of Christ. All the Father gives me will come to me. If, if they're given, they will come to him. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Jesus doesn't go, I don't like this gift. He goes, good and perfect gift for my Father. John 10, 29. Jesus says again, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. In that gift giving, there will not be any loss in the exchange. As though God hands this gift uh, to his son, and he goes, oh, I'm sorry, a lot of them jumped out. I'm sorry. But hey, you still got some. No, no, no. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. There's no loss in that exchange at all. There's a specific number of saints that are given to Jesus by the father. Other verses make it even clearer that the gift of the Father that he gives to the Son is not an ambiguous potential. It's not a whole world gift. But it's a particular, certain, fixed number of people out of the world. Look at John 17, 6. Jesus is praying to the Father. He says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And they they have kept your word. It's a good gift. John 79, Jesus says again, I'm praying for them, his disciples, I'm praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. Whew. For they are yours. Are you seeing this? 
Yes, Jesus is a gift given to us, but we are a gift given to him. We are God's gift to his son, and his gift will not be diminished by our refusal to believe. Some people think this. Some people think like, well, the person can just say, no, God, not doing it, and persist in that even if his intention is otherwise. As though God would say to his son, well, son, I'd hope this gift would be a little bigger, a little better, but the people, they, they, they wouldn't comply. I'm sorry. This is as big as your church can be. This is as beautiful as your bride will be. They, because they didn't, they didn't want to be your gift. Wrong. Jesus even says that when the Father gives him the gift, he's, I'm not going to lose one, Father. Not only does Jesus receive the gift, but Jesus says, I will care for this gift, and I will shepherd this gift into the holy place, and when we get there, every single one will still be there with me. In fact, Jesus says, there may even be people who try to leave the fold, and I will chase them down, and I will grab them by their horns, and drag them back, throw them in the flock, because every single one I will return here with, Father. You, I will not lose one of those good gifts you've given to me. Do you see the perfections here? The perfections of the gift giver that won't lose anything. The perfections of the gift receiver, Jesus, who won't lose anything. We are God's gift to his son. And he will and certainly does grant us the faith required to be that gift. Not only that, he grants us the repentance necessary. 2 Timothy 2, 25 tells us that. And we pray for and compete with non-believers as opponents of the faith to try to compel them to love and honor God. What God says that he's going to do is he may grant them repentance like he's granted to us. He might give them repentance because repentance, like faith, is a gift that must be given unwarranted, undeserved. God gives us the gift of repentance and faith that we may be a worthy gift to his son. He sanctifies and works on us. He perfects us. We are a perfect gift given to the Son, not because of our fleshly wickedness. That has been paid for in Christ. But the Son will receive exactly what the Father intended to give and not one soul less because he is a perfect gift giver. Application point for you guys, you must thank God for your faith. Thank him for your belief. I've, I've used this illustration. I've used a couple of these illustrations before. If, you, 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 if you're wrongly considering that kind of heaven moment, you're, you're, you're finally made it to the lectern, like the, uh, the, uh, the awards show ceremony, and you're up there saying, thank you for me being here. I want to thank everybody who got me here. Thank you, God, for creating me. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for my sins. Thank you, Mom, for telling me about Jesus who died for my sins. And I want to, I at the end, thank myself, because apart from my belief, I wouldn't be here today. No, we say... And I want to thank God for my belief. Because without that gift, I would still not be standing here today. That's what we would say. We must thank him for all that he's given to us, and that even includes our faith. Brothers and sisters, I think this is so significant. I think it'll change the way you pray. I think it'll change the way you think about places like John 3.16. What do we do with verses like this? How do we manage these kinds of things? You and I must thank him daily for all that he's given to us and not stop short of gratitude expressed for even what got us into his saving grace, what justified us. Not, such, not something in me, not something that originated first here, but that ultimately finds its source in God alone. In a moment, we're going to have communion, and it's wonderfully opportune 
Because having communion is a time where we say, I'm not here, I'm not a part of the church because of what I've done, because of what Christ has done. It's a chance to look at the broken body, shed blood. That's what the bread and the cup represent. And say, I ought to have had the death. I ought to have received these things, but I didn't. Not because of anything I've done, but by the grace of God alone. If you're a believer today, if that's what your faith is in, if that's what you're holding out hope for, is only that you have been forgiven in Christ, you're welcome to come forward today and partake of this meal. Want that for you. Eager for you to have that. If you're not today, it's, it won't be meaningful to you. Just let, it, let this moment pass. But I want to go ahead and pray to conclude our servant time and invite you to come forward to the table and take of this awesome and amazing gift. One more thing to thank the Lord for. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for truth. We're so grateful that you sent your only son to this world because of your love for the world that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. God, we are so grateful that even our belief does not originate in us. It is not a condition satisfied in us first. Lord, we are so grateful that your love is so big for us that you enabled, you empowered, you equipped, you did a work in us in such a way that all of the gratitude offered is deserved and owed to you alone. We thank you that that is true. Let this communion time be an acknowledgement of our gratitude for the gift of Christ on the cross, that we can be saved not because of anything we have done, but everything he has done. We pray this in Jesus' good and holy name. Amen.